Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Every once in a while, no matter the sport, a great star gets slighted and fails to be elected into the respective Hall of Fame. Sometimes you can understand why. That the star is a fringe player, but sometimes it's a downright injustice. There is no explanation for why this happens, but it just does. Duke Slater is one of those guys who should be in the Hall of Fame, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, in Canton, Ohio. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to look back on the remarkable career of one of football's great and forgotten heroes, Duke Slater. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello once again and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. And while we have been talking a lot about baseball these past few months, it's time to turn our attention to the gridiron and talk about some of football's great and forgotten heroes. And today, one of football's greatest linemen, a guy who by all accounts should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Duke Slater. And joining us in just a moment will be Neil Rosendahl, who authored the book Duke Slater, pioneering black NFL player and judge, an absolutely terrific look back at a phenomenal career on the field and off. First, just a reminder that today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Every week, I let all of you know about Audible. It really is a terrific way to get your reading in. And if you sign up for a 30-day free trial, you get a free download. And Audible sends Sports Forgotten Heroes a little something to keep this podcast going. There's close to 200,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Give Audible a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Also, don't forget to follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Search for our page on Facebook and get the latest news about Sports Forgotten Heroes at our site, SportsFH.com. And if you get a moment, please leave us a rating, especially on Apple Podcasts. You'd be surprised just how much that means, and we'd always love to hear from you. Visit sportsfh.com, click the Contact Us button, and send in suggestions for future shows. Let us know how we're doing or send in a question. Again, just click Contact Us when you visit sportsfh.com. In 1949, the great Red Grange was asked to name, at that time, the all-time best 11 players in the history of pro football. Now, 
Grange, also known as the Galloping Ghost, a Hall of Famer, took a little liberty with his all-time team and actually named 13 players and didn't include himself. On that list were 12 players who eventually made it to the Pro Football Hall of Fame plus one other, Duke Slater. In fact, Grange said Slater was the best lineman ever. The legendary Newt Rockney assigned three guys to block Slater in a game between Notre Dame and Iowa, and they couldn't stop him. And Slater and his Iowa Hawkeyes beat Notre Dame 10-7 to halt their winning streak at 20 games. Slater played in 99 professional football games. He started 96 of them. He played every second in every game 90 times. That's every second. He missed just one game during his career, and that's because people of color were not allowed to play football in the state of Missouri at that time. Yes, Duke Slater was a stud, a star, the best lineman in the game, and yet he has been overlooked for enshrinement into Pro Football's Hall of Fame. Slater was inducted into college football's Hall of Fame in its original class of 1951, and he is in the Professional Football Researchers Association Hall of Very Good, which has actually been the springboard for such Pro Football Hall of Fame inductees as Ken Stabler, Bob Hayes, Benny Friedman, and several others. Okay, I got off on a little tangent there, and while I think the fact that Slater is not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame is an injustice, that's not what today's show is about. Today, we're going to talk about his terrific career and his life, and joining me to do so is Neil Rosenthal. Neil, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I'm so thrilled that you could join us today. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start right here. Why Duke Slater? How did you first hear about him? And what prompted you to write a book about him? Well, I'm actually a proud graduate of the University of Iowa, so I'm a Hawkeye. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually should take a minute to mention my uh, I have two children. I live out in uh, suburban Washington, D.C., and I have two kids. And um, I have a daughter named Magnolia, and today is actually my my youngest's birthday. He's my son, and he's named Kinnick. Oh, cool! Uh, uh, happy birthday to Kinnick! <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, so his uh, his namesake, of course, at the University of Iowa is uh, Niall Kinnick, who's the 1939 Heisman Trophy winner for the Hawkeyes. Uh, that uh, the University of Iowa named their football stadium after. So um, that's that's a name that has a lot of. Uh, uh, a special sentiment uh, among uh, Iowa Hawkeye fans too. So I'm a I'm a loyal Hawkeye fan, and uh, I, I went to the University of Iowa and 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 graduated from there in 2002. And it's 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 funny. I, I, I how I stumbled upon the Duke Slater story is is uh, there's no one clear story. I mean, it's one of those things that kind of comes to you in bits and pieces. Where uh, I would always walk past Slater Hall uh, on my way to football games, which is uh, the residence hall located closest to the football stadium and you know duke slater's uh namesake he he's the the man that the 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 residence hall is named after and it's one of those things you kind of think about now you know okay okay that's interesting but you sort of you never sort of connect the dots with mm-hmm. duke slater he's kind of well known at the university of iowa there's all kinds of stories about him and his greatness when he played at iowa just after world war one and then of course there are other stories of him and and how great he was in the nfl and then 
uh, some of the things he did in his legal career afterwards. But it, with the Duke Slater story, it was sort of tying together all of these stories that had been uh, floating around, but no one had ever sort of gathered together about what a remarkable life this man lived. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, it's it's funny. I, I tell the story uh, uh, with Duke Slater. Uh, I, I got into writing about different uh, af- uh, uh, the University of Iowa. Uh, specifically, I got into writing about uh, Hawkeye sports. And uh, one of the things that I started to think about was who is who is the greatest Hawkeye athlete uh, in terms of not just what he did at Iowa, but also what he did after his uh-huh. professional sports career, things like that. And Duke Slater, you know, once I started writing the Duke Slater story, I just sort of kept uncovering more and more great things about Duke Slater. And, um, you know, he, he's 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 one of the all time greats in sports history that uh that a lot of people have have forgotten about and that's why i think he's such a great subject for your for your podcast in terms of sports forgotten heroes because you know i i stumbled upon uh, a photo of him once and uh he, it was it was three african-american athletes and on he had one arm around a, a guy who is joe lewis mm. the great boxer from sure. Detroit, sure and then his other arm was around jackie robinson Okay. And then in the middle was Duke Slater and the caption read three great Hawkeye uh, or three great uh, African-American uh, athletes in three different sports, boxing, football and baseball. Right. And I think if, if you if you said that today, people would look at the photo and they would say, OK, Joe Lewis, know him, all time legend. Jackie Robinson, know him, all time legend. Who's that guy You know, <laughs> in the middle? And I just felt like that was so. Uh, uh, inadequate and, 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 you know, he, he, he was in that company in his day. And, uh, you know, once, once I, I realized that, that he, he'd been that on that level, uh, during his life and that people had forgotten about him, I said, man, somebody should write a, a story about him. And, and, uh, I was able to, to put together a biography on him a few years back. And, um, I'm really, really trying to help carry his legacy forward, here for uh, for people specifically with respect to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, anybody out there that wants to read about Duke Slater, learn more about Duke Slater and who he was and and how he is truly overlooked as someone who should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, get Neil's book, Duke Slater. It's really, it's, it's a great read, and it just tells you so much uh, about Duke, and let's let's talk about Duke a little. His name is really Fred Slater. Where did the name Duke come from? Yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, it's one of those nicknames that stuck with Slater as a kid, and nobody's a hundred percent sure how it began. Uh, the 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 story that's I think most accepted is that. Uh, potentially it was a childhood dog that uh, had been around the family <laughs> whose the dog's name was Duke and, and it was sort of ascribed to him. But, uh, you know, it, it, he was known as Duke Slater all his life, including when he became uh, a judge in Chicago. Uh, he was pretty much always known as Duke Slater. And so he's uh, he's he's it's it's one of those names that, you know, Fred Slater is a was a good enough name, but 
in terms of being one of the all-time great players in NFL history. Duke Slater really hit the mark uh, uh, as far as nicknames are concerned. Tell me about his upbringing. Like many back then, particularly in the African-American community, it wasn't easy. His mother died when he was young. His father had to, unfortunately, send his sisters away to extended family. Tell us about his upbringing, how tough it was, who his father was, and how it shaped the man that Duke ultimately became. Sure. He he definitely had a, a tough up upbringing. When you think about Duke Slater, he was born in uh, 1898, so right around the turn of the 20th century there, and uh uh, he's African-American. Uh, he was raised from a very young age and grew up until his uh, until he was about 13 years old. Um, he grew up uh, on the south side of Chicago in sort of the uh, black metropolis that was there uh, developing on the south side of Chicago. He was part of that whole scene. And, and as you say, he had a very uh, uh, tough childhood in terms of, you know, I think a lot of African-Americans of that era. Um, you know, it wasn't, they, they weren't rich. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he, he had to struggle. His, his mother did pass away when he was young and, uh, he had a few siblings and, uh, his single father, George Slater, uh, had to found himself the single father of a number of different kids. So, uh, some of Duke Slater's younger siblings were actually sent out to California to, uh, uh, to live with some family members there. But, you know, as far as Duke Slater and his upbringing was concerned, he was, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of money and he actually learned football just on the streets. He learned football on the streets hmm. of Chicago, um, playing, uh, in, in vacant lots or wherever neighborhood, uh, kids would get together. And the one thing that was great about Duke Slater was he was always meant to be a lineman. He was destined to be a lineman. And when you got neighborhood kids together uh, back in those days, um, they, there was always a need in these schoolyard pickup games for linemen. Everybody wanted to carry the ball. Everybody wanted to be the quarterback or the running back or whatever else. He wanted to tackle people. And so <laughs> there was always a place for him in these games. And uh, that's where he learned the game of football informally on the streets of the south side of Chicago. And uh, uh, that would really kind of become his home later, both in his NFL career and right. then uh, as he uh, as he eventually got into uh, the law career after retirement. From football. Right, right. Yeah, as, as you said, his family didn't have a lot of money, so Duke didn't have the funds to get a helmet, shoes, but he wanted to play. So he did so without both. And even when a helmet was made available, he opted to play without it. Why? And tell me about the challenges of finding shoes big enough to fit the size feet that Duke Slater had. Well, it's funny because he started his formal career at Clinton High School. He played three years of football at Clinton High School in Clinton, Iowa, which is a a Mississippi River town uh, just across the river from from Illinois. Uh, his father, George, was actually a pretty prominent, a nationally known African-American minister uh, in an in AME uh, congregation there. And he got the the uh, he was uh, chosen to serve as the pastor uh, of a church in, in, in Clinton, Iowa. So that's how Duke Slater wound up there to play his college ball. Um, now, in those days, which his first year with Clinton High School was 1913, um, in, in those days, the players themselves had to provide 
a helmet and shoes. And it was about $5 a piece, $5 for a helmet, $5 for shoes. And mm-hmm. As we, we just covered, uh, he came from a, from a poor family. I mean, they didn't have much money. And his dad, he went to his dad and said, hey, I, I need this. And his dad said, well, I can't afford both. You got to choose one. And the famous line that the Duke Slater said was, well, I couldn't imagine playing the game barefoot. <laughs> so I decided to go without the helmet. And uh, which was not unprecedented in those days. There were a few players who did that, not many, right, right. but a few. And so he he decided to play without a helmet and he played his entire high school career and most of his college career right. without a helmet. And uh, of course, there were the, uh, uh, the the old leather helmets in those days and, and probably didn't provide the most protection anyway. But uh, it's interesting you asked the question of how I decided to write a book about him. One of the things that I did was I was I was looking through old photos of Hawkeye football, and you'd see all these smaller sort of uh, white uh, players running around. And all of a sudden, there's this massive African-American lineman running around a field with no helmet on. <laughs> and you're like, who is that guy? And what is he doing out there? <laughs> and uh, when you see a photo like that, it's like, wow, man, I've got to write. Uh, I got, I got to learn more about this guy. And so that was kind of, kind of how it came about. But, um, as far as his shoes were concerned, he always had huge feet, like almost, uh, uh, intimidatingly large feet. Uh, he was a man of, of very, very big proportions. Cause as I said, he was a lineman, he was a tackle. Um, so they actually had to special order his shoes and, uh, uh, people would marvel at the size of his shoes and the size of his feet. Um, and so, uh, that was, that was his, uh, choice in terms of choosing a helmet or choosing the shoes. But, uh, but, uh, he played most of his, his college career at the university of Iowa without a helmet. And, um, uh, really just sort of added to this legend of, of, of a guy who was just a, a, a tough football player in a tough era of football. Now his father didn't want him to play football, did he? How did Duke sway him? I mean, from what I've read, not only did his father not want him to play, Duke was, I guess, I don't want to use the word depressed, but he was disappointed that he couldn't play. So he quit school, but I guess to get him back in school, his father agreed to let him try. Tell me about his father not wanting him to play, Duke leaving, and then how he came back to playing football in high school. Yeah, George Slater, Duke's father, had a tremendous influence on his life. Again, as a uh, 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 single father, uh, he actually, George Slater actually remarried, and um, uh, Duke became very close to his stepmom as well. But uh, George Slater was was a was a profound influence on on Duke's life, and it's funny because uh, he did not want Duke Slater playing football at first, and in fact, that's the reason that Duke Slater only played three years of football at Clinton high school is because his entire freshman year, uh, he was held out by Mm -hmm. his father. Uh, his father did not let him play. And, uh, his sophomore year, Duke Slater said, you know what? I, I, I gotta get in this. So he tried to play, uh, behind his father's back and without his father knowing. And the problem of course there was that, uh, they would issue you jerseys, uh, to play. You had to pay for your own helmets and shoes, but they would give you sort of the school jerseys that were passed down from class to class. And the jersey that was handed to Duke Slater uh, 
was a fairly large one, but it had several rips and tears and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so Duke brought it to his stepmother and said, you know, hey, could you fix this up? Uh, and his stepmom was uh, essentially patching up the football jersey he was given when his father came home somewhat unexpectedly and and stumbled upon it. And the gig was up and uh, his father said, no, absolutely not. You are not playing football. And uh, it, it, it could have ended right there. Duke Slater's entire football career could have ended at that point. But Duke Slater was, you know, he was despondent. He was he went on a hunger strike. And he had several days where he didn't eat. He lost weight. He was, you know, and his stepmom was actually very supportive of Duke Slater playing. That's why she was mending his jersey. And she kind of uh, helped beg uh, George Slater to reconsider. Duke helped George uh, uh, try to reconsider. And George Slater's objections, it's funny, is that George Slater felt that football was a sport played by roughnecks. Mm-hmm. And he felt that it was too violent a sport, which is is amusing because that's something that parents still say today. I mean, yeah. they lodge that complaint about their kids playing. And that was his his objection to it even back in 1913. And of course, you know, the sport back then, there were documented fatalities. And not only that, but also as an African-American, obviously, Duke Slater would be a little bit more of a target for that kind of play. And so his father didn't want him playing, but uh, they were able to sway George Slater. Duke Slater, uh, again, went on the hunger strike and uh, was able to get his father to relent. But his father told him, he said, all right, you can play football, but only under one condition. He says, you cannot get hurt. You have to (laughs) take the precautions, not including buying a helmet, of course. But (laughs) aside from that, you have to take every precaution you can to not get hurt. He's like, because if you get hurt, it's you're done. Right. And so Duke Slater would come home from practices and from games and he would be beat up and he have bruise and he have, you know, muscle soreness and whatever else he would always conceal it, always conceal it from his father. And he trained himself to conceal it. And so what happened was as his college career progressed and his professional career progressed, Duke Slater sort of earned this reputation as this sort of, invulnerable uh player where he was he he sort of had this legend of a a guy who was not only physically dominating but also was almost like impervious to being hurt because he never showed his injuries never talked about with with everybody else oh never showed his pain never showed because he'd been trained that if if i do my dad's gonna pull me out of the sport and so it sort of helped add to this legend of him being this this dominant physical force and that obviously helped him considerably once he started college and, and his professional career did he at one point quit high school go to work chopping ice and said man i don't want to do this and then he went back to high school yes he absolutely did and and again i think that was part of george slater's influence on him was at one point he said uh, I don't really, I'm not really that interested in school. It's, it's not for me. You know, it's probably not going to take me anywhere. Anyway, let me just go ahead and get started on a on a working career and start earning some money. And his father was the one who very cleverly, rather than fight his son and order him to go back to school, which he may or may not have taken to, rather than just ordering him to go back, he said, okay, son, all right, you can quit. Absolutely. 
And then he said, but I'm going to line you, I'm going to hook you up with a job. And the job that he hooked <laughs> his son up with was chopping ice on the Mississippi river oh. in sub zero temperatures. And it was the worst manual labor job. It was cold. It was hard. It was brutal. And a, uh, 13, 14 year old Duke Slater said, you know what, maybe I better reconsider this whole going to class thing. <laughs> and, uh, he decided to go back to school and, you know, a huge, huge part of Slater's story, because obviously he became a, a, a very famous athlete, but he also, uh, became very educated, very intelligent, earned a graduate degree, and, uh, he became a very learned man. And so, that was also something that was imparted upon him at such a young age by his father, who was really a tremendous influence on his life. And it's really interesting, too, because if not for football, none of that might have happened because Duke wanted to play the game. His father doesn't let him play, ultimately goes and watches him play, likes it, tells him he can't get hurt for whatever that's worth. But if there's no football there's a possibility that Duke does not become the judge later in life. No question about that. And I think one of the, the amazing things about Slater's story is that for all the discrimination that he faced, and he faced a lot of it during his career, as you can imagine, an African-American sure. football player in the 1920s, he never really talked about it and he never really complained about it because his attitude and his mentality was always – you know what? Football opened doors for me and gave me opportunities that I might not have had otherwise. And he was always just grateful for what he was given rather than being resentful over the discrimination that he faced and how uh, maybe he some of his achievements were being downplayed in some corners. He never concerned himself with that because he he, he basically had the attitude that, look, Football has given me tremendous opportunities. Football is a great sport. It's allowed me to to go on to law school and to do some other things. And if not for football, I might not have had those opportunities. So I'm not going to complain about the fact that maybe the deck was stacked against me as a lineman uh, in in the 1920s who happened to be black. You know, I'm not I'm not going to complain about those kinds of things that I faced and the prejudice that I faced because. You know, on the whole, football did so many good things for my life and gave me so many opportunities. Right. That he was fast, he was strong, and he was intelligent, as we just talked about. He was really big, as we just talked about as well. Tell me about the man from a physical and intelligence point of view. Well, it's it's funny because if you were to – what I would say about Duke Slater is if you were to craft the ideal – 1920s lineman duke slater was it i mean he was first and foremost he was he was large he had considerable size uh he he weighed about 215 220 pounds which today of course would be considered minuscule sure but back in the 1920s anybody who was topping 200 would be like someone who was topping 300 mm -hmm. you know or, or 330 today like that was seen as one of the largest players Whenever Duke Slater played, he was one of the largest players on the field, either the biggest or one of the two or three biggest. Um, so he had considerable size, but a lot of players who were 200 plus pounds in that era were, to be blunt, big fat guys. They were big, large guys who couldn't move. <laughs> and Duke Slater's entire frame was muscle. He was a chiseled, 
man. And a lot of it was in order to, you know, help pay the bills. He had to take a lot of manual labor jobs. He hauled bricks. He shoveled gravel. He hauled concrete and wheelbarrows. I mean, he worked all these hard manual labor jobs, and he became so strong and so muscular that uh, at 220 plus, you know, at 220 pounds and strong, he was different from most other 200 plus pounders on the field at that time. And did you, then, didn't you write about something about he was uh, mm-hmm. uh, emptying a a, a, uh, a a car on a railroad or something <laughs> of concrete and they had all these other guys there to do the job and they couldn't do it and he did it himself. That's exactly right. Well, what happened was is that there was a miscommunication in that um, he was working for a company that would shovel, uh, uh, shovel gravel. And he was working with a group of guys who did that. But the company sort of inadvertently sent their workers home. And, one, you know, Slater, Duke Slater was the last one there. And the, the train came in uh, with one additional big cargo, you know, uh, car full of gravel, just full from the top. And Duke Slater was the only guy still there because he had, you know, he he had been working late. So they figured, well, we'll do it tomorrow. And of course, the, they were upset about that because that would create a whole another day where the train car would have to be there, and you know that that kind of expense and all those kinds of things. Duke Slater said, well, you know what? I'll work a little overtime. Okay, okay. He grabbed one of the biggest scoops he could find, <laughs> climbed in there, and started shoveling the 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 gravel over the side of the thing onto a pile of. He's like, and by sundown, the car the car was empty, and people were just <laughs> in awe that he had undid he had unloaded that thing all by himself, which is probably you know four to six man job normally. But they you know, but he was the only one there, so he unloaded it all, and and those were the kinds of you know stories that kind of spread. Another one of my favorite stories about Duke Slater's strength was uh, this was when he was playing uh, pro football. He was playing with Rock Island in the uh, the AFL in 1926, and they were on a road trip. So they were they were busing at the time, and they were going to a game in Cleveland. And uh, just outside of Toledo, their team bus blew a flat tire, and so they had to go out and change the tire. Well, they drew straws amongst the players on the bus to see who would have to go out and change his flat tire because nobody wanted to do it. And Duke Slater drew the short straw. So he goes out to go fix this tire on the bus. He takes the toolbox and he goes out and he fixes the tire and he gets the new tire put on and he gets back on the bus and they start the bus and they start to go off down the road. And uh, somebody takes the toolbox and they open the toolbox and they pull out the wrench that Duke Slater had used to change the tire. And it's the solid metal wrench and it was bent he had bent it while changing this tire just through his own force of strength and all these players are cattering around and they're like how did you bend this solid metal wrench while you're changing this tire but that's the kind of brute strength that duke slater had that uh, again had just been developed over over years and years and decades of, of doing manual labor jobs to 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 you know, earn money and and be able to to pay for his own survival. And what about his intelligence? Well, obviously, he was extremely intelligent as well. And you know, it wasn't just the fact that he was big and strong. He was also extremely fast. He could 
you know, he was a gunner on punts and kickoffs to where he would literally run down the field and try to tackle the, the, the person who was fielding the punt. And for, for a man that big, a man that big was not supposed to be the first one down there on those kinds of plays, but that's the kind of speed that he had. And then, you know, in addition to all the physical attributes, he had the intellect, which, you know, was one of the things that his coach, who was a legendary uh, college coach at the University of Iowa, Howard Jones, mm-hmm. um, he was a Hall of Fame coach who later went off to USC and really helped establish USC as, as the college football dynasty that they are. Howard Jones um, was coaching in Iowa, and he said about Duke Slater that he was never fooled by the opponent's offensive charge. He was never in the wrong position on a play. He, he always had a way of diagnosing the play and being where he needed to be uh, at any particular time. And the fact that he could not be fooled by that and that he was such an intelligent player, an instinctive player as well, I think only added to the physical attributes that he already had. Hmm. Duke was actually, I believe, the first black man to play in the NFL, even at a time when the league was trying to rid itself of African-American players. Yet he doesn't get the credit other players like Jackie Robinson or Larry Doby do uh, in baseball. He doesn't get the same credit when it comes to crossing the color barrier. Why? Well, uh, I think first and foremost, he wasn't the first African-American to play in the NFL. He was the first black lineman to play in the National Football League, which is to say a traditional guard uh, tackle center position. Um, He came into the league in 1922. Two years before him, there were uh, two individuals, uh, Bobby Marshall and Fritz Pollard. Sure, and Fritz is in the black players. And and I believe Fritz is in the Hall of Fame. Yes, Fritz was was inducted. uh, many years later, back in 2005, which is, you know, it's it's another one of those kinds of uh, uh, interesting things because, you know, not that Fritz doesn't deserve it, but when, you know, if, if Fritz is in, if Pollard's in, you, you sit back and say, well, why not Slater? But, you know, the, the thing that I'll say about Duke Slater is he was the first lineman who came in in, in 1922. He played for 10 years and he had a tremendous career uh, for, for African-Americans in the NFL prior to World War II, if you look at all the black players who played in the NFL before World War II, Duke Slater pretty clearly on the merits had uh, 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 the best career of any of them. And, you know, he, he played the longest. He had the most accolades. He was a, a tremendous player in, in that era. But all the guys who kind of played prior to World War II, they've they've kind of been forgotten or, or, or put – cast to the wayside, uh, you know, compared to more modern era players. And, you know, in terms of why that's always sort of a complex issue, but, you know, with Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby, you know, they're, they are remembered as much because they were great players, obviously, and they had tremendous success, but after they played the world changed, Mm -hmm. like after they played the floodgates open for black baseball players and, you know, they weren't just the first, they sort of led a charge of players who came behind them. And the sad sort of thing about Duke Slater's career is that, you know, he came in, he, he dominated in the national football league for 10 years, but the world didn't really change. And that's not Slater's fault. It's just that the world really wasn't ready to change at that time. 
when Duke Slater retired in 1931, uh, he had been holding the door open for African-American players for most of the late 1920s. Duke Slater was the only black player in the entire NFL. Wow. And In 1931, when he retired, he was sort of fighting against this move towards segregation. Two years after Slater retired, they passed a ban on black players that lasted for 12 years. And so, you know, even though Duke Slater was fighting against this injustice, he, you know, he wasn't able to hold the door open permanently the way that Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby did. When when you start comparing great African-American pioneers of different sports there, there often isn't a perfect analogy, and there usually isn't. But, um, but Duke Slater was was certainly a great African American pioneer in his era, and it's sad that he isn't better remembered than he is for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What kind of racial tensions did he face throughout his career? High school, college, the pros. What kind of what kind of racial tensions did he face on the field? Um, you know, he would sometimes face bigotry. How did he handle those types of incidents and how often did he face such incidents? Well, I think that's an interesting part of Slater's legacy is the fact that he did he ha- did he face those kinds of racial incidents? Of course, absolutely. In 17 years of organized football at the high school college and professional levels, he certainly faced those those kinds of incidents, but they aren't as widely reported as you might expect and as you might have thought you would see from a player who played in that era, who played as long as he did, as, as Duke Slater did. And a lot of that, I think, is just the fact that he had the temperament where he, he wasn't uh, a hothead. Mm-hmm. He wasn't someone who reacted to things. Yep. I mean, he really had a notion where he he got along with people and he got you know and he tried to diffuse tensions with sort of humor and with a smile which was uncommon i think one of the uh one of the stories that uh uh, is told about duke slater was uh, he was playing in a college game against northwestern and uh one of the northwestern players uh was sort of trying to to, to get him riled up, I guess, or get into his head and, uh, lined up across from him and said, uh, said, Hey Duke, I hear that, uh, I was going to have a team of all Negroes next year. And of course you can imagine that <laughs> he didn't say Negroes or he didn't say anything too polite or whatever. That's I'm probably sure. a sanitized version of what he said. But, uh, Duke Slater just got a big smile and, uh, immediately shot back and he's like, don't worry about a white boy. They're only trying to scare you. <laughs> you know, basically saying, don't worry, there aren't 10 more of me waiting to come on the field, you know, <laughs> because, uh, you know, and uh, it's funny because that that exchange, uh, uh, it was said, became one of uh, uh, Joe Lewis, who we mentioned earlier, it became one of his favorite stories to tell uh, socially about black athletes was uh, was how he sort of just said, don't worry, you know, they're only trying to scare you. But, um, yeah, he, he was able to handle it with, with a sort of class and with a sort of dignity where he could diffuse people with – and also the fact that he was one of the, the biggest and most intimidating guys on the team. I mean let's, let's not kid ourselves. The fact that Duke Slater was not a guy who physically you looked at and said, I'm going to go pick a fight with that guy. Um, mm-hmm. There was, there was uh, another incident when he was in the NFL where it was said that uh, a guy came after Duke Slater and, and was kind of throwing some cheap shots and late hits afterwards and whatever 
while he was lying on the ground. And it said the Duke Slater just got up, looked him in the eye and said, don't do that again because I don't want to have to hurt you. And the way that he said it and the seriousness that he said it with and the look that he gave him and the physical presence, he said, you know, the, the person who was telling the story said he he didn't he didn't mess with him the rest of the game like that, that put an end to it right there because you knew he had the physical presence to, you know, to to hurt people like legitimately hurt people if he wanted to. And yet there are numerous stories of how Duke Slater, he would come down on a punt and this little, you know, um, uh, punt returner would be 130 pounds and Duke Slater would be bearing down on him and could just really, really hurt this guy if he wanted to. But instead he wraps him up and puts him to the ground, you know, he, he makes the tackle, but without any sort of, Extra. I'm just going to uh, destroy, you know, like. It was very sort of let you know. I'm not going to go beyond what I need you know to do in right. this in this situation, and that gained him the respect not only of his teammates but of his opponents who said, you know what, if we treat this guy fairly, he, you know there's not going to be a problem. And uh, and so there really weren't as many racial incidents as as you might expect. But I think that's again one of the aspects of Slater that's so tragic is the fact that. If there had been maybe more dust ups, if it had been more volatile, maybe we'd remember him better than we wow. do. Um, wow. But he just he got along so well with everyone that I think it's made it easier to forget him because, you know, he didn't have this sort of animosity all the time with everyone else. It was one of those things where where he 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 had respect for his opponents and, and really they had respect for him despite the times and, and despite uh, everything that was going on around him. So he played his football Clinton High School, where he was the proverbial man amongst boys, totally dominates, and then he ends up in Iowa as a Hawkeye. How did he get to Iowa? Well, he he wasn't really uh, recruited in terms of being widespread recruiting. Uh, again, he he finished uh, his college career uh, at Clinton High School in 1915. And so as an African-American in, you know, playing football, there weren't a ton of opportunities there for him. And it certainly wasn't a huge recruiting war for him. For him, the fact that he was in the state of Iowa and the fact that he didn't want to leave the state was a big part of it. Because, again, this wasn't an era where you got a bunch of athletic scholarships. He was going to have to work and he was going to have to go in-state tuition and everything else. Um, with Slater, too, and and as well with the University of Iowa, Iowa had actually had a couple of black athletes before. Iowa had had two black football players play for the University of Iowa mm-hmm. already in 1915. And that's notable because that wasn't true at every school. And uh, recently, Iowa had had a black tackle by the name of Archie Alexander, who had uh, gone on to become uh, a pretty well known within the city. And so that kind of opened the door for Duke Slater, uh, uh, supposedly a couple of Iowa alums, a couple of judges that his family really respected, sort of whispered in their ear and said, hey, you know, Iowa is a place where you'll be able to get a chance. And uh, so that's how he wound up in Iowa City, again, because of the tradition that they had for African-American athletes. And after Duke Slater's career, 
that opened the floodgates at the University of Iowa to where the University of Iowa became nationally known in an era of segregation of in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s of where black athletes can go to get an opportunity to play. And that really started with Duke Slater because he became one of the great college football players of all time at Iowa as an African-American. And uh, so, uh, uh, so many other black athletes sort of followed uh, in his footsteps to Iowa City, really to try to emulate what Slater was able to do there. Hmm. How good was that Iowa team that he played on? Of course, football was a little different than it is today. And we're talking about back in 1917, 1918. How good was that team? And just how important was Duke to the success of those teams? Well, he they had a very, very uh, great run for four years when Duke Slater was in uniform. He played four seasons at Iowa from 1918 to 1921. Uh, typically, uh, college athletes would only play three, but his first year, 1918, was at the height of World War I, and all the eligibility rules were suspended. Basically, if you were an able-bodied individual and you could suit up, you could play uh, football, and it wouldn't count against you. And so that was how he was able to play in 1918 and not use any of what was at that time three years of eligibility. Uh, and then he finished out from 1919 to 1921. Um, and uh, under the guidance of Howard Jones, uh, the great Hall of Fame coach, uh, uh, again, both at Iowa and then uh, more prominently later at USC, um, Iowa, Iowa had some phenomenal teams. Uh, Duke Slater was twice named uh, an All-American. Uh, he was named a second team All-American as a sophomore in 1919. And then his senior year is really the year that people remember. Uh, the 1921 Hawkeyes were uh, uh, arguably the greatest team in school history. They were uh, they have every bit of a they were the undisputed Big Ten champions. Um, they won the Big Ten championship outright. They went undefeated, and uh, frankly, in in the eyes of many, they had every right to to be the mythical national champions of 1921. I I think you can put together a very very compelling case. They were the best college football team in the nation in 1921. Mm -hmm. um, and Duke Slater was a, a huge part of that as a lineman. He was named a first-team All-American, um, controversially not named consensus first-team All-American right. because, you know, it was, it, was, it was the times. But, you know, he was – it was important and notable because this was the first time in the history of college football that a, a team with a legitimate claim on a national championship – uh, had an African-American playing such a prominent role. And, uh, and, and that's why Duke Slater was, was so well-remembered and uh, why that's, that's largely the reason why in 1951, when they opened the College Football Hall of Fame, uh, Duke Slater was uh, a member of the inaugural class right. of the College Football Hall of Fame, and he was the only African-American in that class. He was the first uh, African-American honored. Uh, uh, by being inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. And it was because of that uh, four-year run that, that they had at Iowa and particularly his, his role in the 1921 Hawkeye team, which was seen as one of the uh, arguably, uh, in my opinion, pretty clearly uh, the best college football team in, in the nation that year. And wasn't it around that time that Iowa was invited to play in the Rose Bowl? They didn't go, and and that sort of affected the legacy of that team as well. Why didn't they get to play? 
Well, that was what he always said was one of his bigger disappointments of his college career was that Duke Slater did not get to play in the Rose Bowl. Um, the year prior, uh, uh, the Big Ten usually had a ban on teams playing in postseason games. The year prior, they lifted it and they allowed Ohio State to go play in the Rose Bowl. And uh, they got beat. And I, if I recall, I think they got beat fairly badly. But uh, so the Big Ten said, nope, we are, we are not doing that again. And so uh, what would have otherwise been um, uh, Iowa going out to play uh, a pretty good uh, uh, California team. Um, instead, they uh, they decided to invite uh, a little school named William and Jefferson uh, to go in Iowa's place. And it, it wound up being, a, uh, I think, a scoreless tie of a Rose Bowl or something like that that was not uh, – uh, uh, particularly memorable, but um, Duke Slater always said that was one of his his biggest regrets that he wasn't able to represent Iowa and the Big Ten in their first ever appearance in the Rose Bowl. Because I think, uh, again, when you look at the 1921 Hawkeyes, they were a tremendous team. They were very very good defensively. Um, it was very hard for other teams to score points on them. Um, offensively, they weren't always seen as being as good as they actually were mostly because they had a couple of games where they had some relatively low scoring games, but uh, uh, a couple of those games were because the weather was just terrible. And then a couple of their ga- those games were the memorable victories that they had over Illinois, which was, uh, I believe the three time defending uh, uh, big 10 champion or co-champion. And then uh, of course, an epic 10 to seven win over Newt Rockney and Notre Dame. Right. But uh in some of the other games, Iowa did put up very large offensive numbers, particularly against teams like Indiana and Minnesota. They were a, they were an extremely good team, extremely well-rounded, and uh, and and all Iowa kids. And and uh, again, Duke Slater and his exploits on the offensive line were a big part of it because offensively and defensively, Duke Slater was able to stop opposing offenses and open holes uh, offensively that really made that that Hawkeye team uh, a special one. I think in your book you have a picture of of Duke blocking in that game against Notre Dame. He takes out like three guys and opens up this huge hole. It's a pretty famous picture. It's probably uh, – it's one of the most famous pictures uh, in, in uh, Hawkeye football history. Um, when you look at that game, that 10-7 to 7 game, that's really the game on, of Duke Slater's college career that everyone remembers, that everyone talks about. Um, Newt Rockney came in uh, with his Notre Dame team. They hadn't lost a game in three years. They were on a 20-game uh, winning streak. I think Coach Rockney only lost something like 12 games as head coach at Notre Dame, and this was one of them uh, when they walked into Iowa City. And uh, uh, it's funny, before the game, they, 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 uh, the story that they tell is that uh, in a little bit of gamesmanship, we talked about how huge Duke Slater's feet were. They took one of uh, an old pair of Duke Slater sneakers, and they accidentally left it in the Notre Dame locker room. <laughs> Notre Dame walked in and <laughs> opened the locker, and there were these shoes. And this Notre Dame player pulls it out, lifts it up, and says, who are we playing? Are we playing Giants? <laughs> and all the players gathered around like, oh, my goodness. You know, they, they expected a guy to come out there who was like nine feet tall. And, uh, and, and that, was, that was Duke Slater and, and, and the gamesmanship there. But, yeah, the, the photo that, you're, that you actually mentioned was, again, Duke Slater played without a helmet for most of his career at Iowa. And uh, actually that Notre Dame game was the, the game that he said taught him how to use a helmet. 
uh, because he wore his helmet for most of his uh, uh, his senior year after that game. Um, but there's a, a photo of him sort of blocking three Notre Dame linemen at once, and he's down on the ground and he's holding one of his arms at sort of a 90 degree angle to shield his head where a helmet would usually be to protect himself from any incoming flying uh, 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 blows that might be coming from some direction from a Notre Dame player. But he, uh, 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 the, the battle that he had in that game is sort of epic. There was another great 1920s player, a guy by the name of Hunk Anderson, which mm-hmm. is another great 1920s football name. But uh, Hunk Anderson coming into the game Hunk Anderson was known as one of the great linemen in college football. And, and so is Duke. And, and the, the, the pregame talk was which of these two players was going to get carried out on the stretcher, you know, <laughs> like who is, who is going to get the better? Was it going to be Duke or was it going to be Hunk, you know? And, uh, and what wound up happening was Hunk Anderson came into that game. And even if the play was going away from Duke, he'd go right at Duke Slater and Duke, Duke Slater eventually stopped and he said, why are you coming after me? The ball is going in the other direction. And Hunk Anderson said, Rock told me to put it on you. Coach Rockney <laughs> told me to put it on you. He's like, I don't care where the ball is going. I'm coming after you. Well, the problem was is that he was so fixated on outplaying Duke Slater that, you know, it, it, he, he would over-pursue. He would get himself out of position. And I was able to score 10 points early in the game and then hold on for a 10-7 victory over Notre Dame. And uh, in what was one of the hard-fought games of, you know, of uh, toward the end of that game in this 10-7 defensive battle, one of the players started getting on uh, Hunk Anderson about uh, uh, about the fact that Duke was outplaying him. And he, he finally just snapped his teammate. And he's like, do you want to trade places with me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's like, how about coming in here where the game's being played? You know, but... Uh, it was uh, it was one of those epic victories, obviously for for Iowa. That's 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 remembered. And the Iowa Notre Dame game uh, was really the one that the Duke Slater would look back as the as the best game of his college career. And that kind of set the set the tone for the Hawkeyes going on and, and going undefeated and 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 winning the uh, the outright Big Ten championship uh, with an undefeated season in 1921. And 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 that was a big part of Duke Slater's legacy as well. Now, before we get on to the pros, you, you you talked about the coach, Howard Jones. He and Duke had a unique relationship, and I think Howard or Coach Jones really respected Duke. But I think one of his motivating ploys to get Duke fired up for a game was, man, you're not guaranteed to start. Heck, your roster spot's not even guaranteed, so you better play well. Yeah. One of the stories that that is always kind of compelling about that is that they were getting ready to play their final game uh, at Northwestern, the final game of the 1921 season. And in the in the locker room before the game, he goes up to Duke Slater and says, if you don't play up to your standard this game, I'm pulling you out (laughs) like right away. (laughs) But a lot of that, too, was that, you know, it was it was a it was a shot to everybody on the team where, I mean, he wasn't singling Duke Slater out so much as he was saying to everybody, look, if his spot isn't guaranteed, you know your spot's not guaranteed guaranteed either. So, you know, and that was a big part of the the psychology of it. My my favorite Duke Slater story with respect to Howard Jones was at the very beginning. Howard Jones – um, was, uh, was, was a, not that far removed as a, a football player himself. Uh, he had played at Yale under a couple of national championship teams at Yale, a couple undefeated teams. Um, so he was really a good player too. And, and he was one of those coaches who 
because these coaches were so young and so not far removed from playing, they would want to demonstrate in practice. Here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. So in 1918, Duke Slater walks on as a freshman. Nobody really knows who he is. And he's showing uh, uh, defensive line play. Howard Jones is, is telling you how to play defensive line. So he's, he's trying to show how a smaller uh, defensive lineman can overpower a much bigger offensive lineman by quickly charging over and, you know, sort of knocking them off their feet. Mm -hmm. So he looks and he says, Hmm, who can I demonstrate this move on? And he sees Duke Slater, you know, this huge black man towering over everyone else. He's like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do it with this guy. So he tells Duke to come out front and Duke lines up and he's like, all right, I'm going to show you. So the whistle blows and Howard Jones barrels into Duke Slater with all of his might, tries to push him. And Duke Slater does not give any ground, neutralizes him, <laughs> pushes forward. And when the dust clears, Duke Slater, 200 and some pounds of him, is laying on the ground, flat on the ground, right on top of Howard Jones. <laughs> and, of course, you can imagine all the Hawkeye football players are they're losing it. Of course, they're not going to laugh at their head coach just being just being Pumped. completely annihilated yeah. at this. Yeah. But, but they said that uh, – the, they said that Howard Jones learned two things that day. They said, number one, he never again used in practice a demonstration on a player he'd not seen play, right? <laughs> like on a new new incoming freshman, he never tried to demonstrate on a player he hadn't sized up in practice already. And the second thing is that he never he never demonstrated any play on Duke Slater again. He said, <laughs> you are my starting lineman and you get in there and I'm not, you know. And, uh, and that was sort of the beginning of, of that. So they had – they had a very, you know, Howard Jones was tough on him, but he pushed him to be better. And uh, and Duke Slater took to that. Duke Slater took to that very, very well. And I think that was a big reason why Duke Slater became uh, as dominant a football player as he did. His 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 years in high school, his years in college, he won, you know, the majority of his games. I mean, he very rarely experienced a loss. His first few years in the pros, however, from a team perspective, they weren't that good. The Rock Island Independents were a, a 500 team at best. How tough were those first few years for him not to be winning at the same clip he was in high school and in college? Well, he came in with Rock Island and uh... – uh, actually, Rock Island for several years they weren't at the top of the NFL, but Rock Island actually was reasonably competitive at first. Um, for uh, uh, he was with them toward the end of Rock Island's tenure, and for a small market team, they were pretty good. The problem that Rock Island had was they were small market in an NFL where markets eventually started to become more and more important. Um, in his first year as a rookie in 1922, there was another lineman along him along side him the other tackle on the other side of the line was a guy by the name of ed healy and uh ed healy uh was a great player but uh at the end of that first season 1922 the rock island independence in what can be seen as the first uh trade in nfl history or the first sale in nfl history they basically sold the rights to ed healy to the chicago bears for 100 bucks mm. and ed healy went on to become a, a hall of famer pro football hall of famer just a, a tremendous, tremendous lineman. But Rock Island couldn't afford to keep him. And Ed Healy, I think, once told a story about how it was amazing how he went from Rock Island to where, you know, to a Chicago Bears team where at least they had hot water in the showers, you know. And so it was <laughs> – 
he was playing for a very small market team. But one of the benefits for Duke Slater was they were small market. So there was so the fact that he was African-American wasn't as big of an issue. When you look at some of the African-Americans who played in the NFL in the 1920s and the early 1930s, most of them played for small market teams. And the reason they played for small market teams is because the bigger and more successful teams most of the time didn't need them. Uh, These were teams that not only needed them to be competitive on the field, they needed them as a box office draw. And a lot of African-American fans in the Quad Cities would come out to Rock Island Independence Games to to see Slater play. Um, But the Rock Island teams, they had their moments. In 1924, certainly, that was the team more than any that Slater played on in his 10-year career that legitimately contended for the NFL title. Um, but, uh, uh, unfortunately they were derailed and Slater was a huge, uh, central figure in that, but, uh, uh, he had some success with rock Island, uh, when he was there, but at the conclusion of that, he wound up going to Chicago Cardinals and the Chicago Cardinals, they really struggled for a few years, right. uh, uh, until things turned around at the end of, at the end of Slater's career in Chicago. But, um, but, you know, again, for Slater winning and losing was almost secondary to, you know what, I'm, I'm representing African-Americans in the National Football League here. Let's, you know, let's let's put on a show and let's show that, you know, that we can do this thing. And uh, uh, he was a great representation uh, uh, for black players in the NFL and how they could be successful, regardless of what the circumstances were going on around them. Yeah, I mean, newspapers used to refer to him as the colored guy, the Negro, the African-American. And in reading your book, I guess. Because he was so good, he didn't face as much discrimination as I thought he might have faced. That is until his first pro game in the state of Missouri against the Kansas City Blues. Tell us about that and how it actually interrupted Slater's streak of 19 straight, uh, I think it was 19 straight games where he played every second of every game or something like that to set the island the, the the record for Rock Island. That game also showed just how valuable Duke Slater was to his team, didn't it? And and the rematch a few weeks later, Duke prevailed. That's exactly right. Uh, and that's kind of a little bit of what I referenced uh, before was the 1924 Rock Island Independence team. That was probably maybe the best uh, pro team that Duke Slater played for in his 10-year NFL career. Um, in 1924, the Rock Island Independence brought in a guy by the name of Jim Thorpe, who was widely known <laughs> yeah. as the best football player maybe who'd ever played the game. But by this point in 1924, Thorpe was, was considerably over the hill. But he was still Jim Thorpe, and so uh, the Rock Island Independents got off to a great start. They were undefeated in their first month of the season, on top of the NFL standings uh, a month into the year at the end of October, I believe, and uh, uh, really were legitimately in contention for the NFL championship. And then they were scheduled to play a game at the Kansas City Blues in Kansas City, uh, Missouri. And um, the Kansas City Blues, I think, were a first-year team. They were winless at the time. Uh, Most people figured Rock Island would go down there and handle their business fairly easily. But again, this was at Kansas City, Missouri. and the NFL, there was a gentleman's agreement that uh, black players did not play in uh, uh, in NFL games in Missouri. And so Hmm. they went down there and I believe Duke Slater accompanied the team there, but he did not play uh, in that game against Kansas City. Uh, That game, the Rock Island Independents started 
uh, 10 of 11 starters from the previous game. Uh, the only uh, starter that they had to change for that Kansas City game was Duke Slater. And uh, in a fairly shocking turn of events, uh, the Rock Island Independents were upset by Kansas City, and they lost to the Kansas City Blues uh, in that game. And uh, a few weeks later, Kansas City was scheduled to come to Rock Island for the return game. Well, this game would be held in Rock Island, and uh, because it was held in Illinois, Duke Slater would be allowed to play. So Duke Slater uh, lined up and played all 60 minutes in that game, which was his custom, just to play all 60 minutes in, in, in these NFL games. He played all 60 minutes in that game, and he had a great game, and Rock Island was able to beat the Kansas City Blues in shutout fashion 17 to nothing. Uh, unfortunately for the Rock Island Independents, the damage was done. Uh, they finished that 1924 season with two losses, which was one more than the NFL champion Canton Bulldogs. And so the Rock Island Independents, uh, largely on the basis of that loss to Kansas City, were not given an opportunity uh, or came up just short, I should say, uh, of a shot at the NFL title. So um, what's what's the interesting postscript for me about Duke Slater is that he played 99 games in his 10-year professional football career. That was the only game he missed in his professional football career. If, uh, if he'd been allowed to play, he would have played a uh, and even 100 professional football games, wow. but he played 99 because he missed one game. And the one game he missed in 10 seasons in his career, the one professional football game he missed, he didn't miss because he was injured. He didn't miss because of illness. He didn't miss because of some other. He missed because of the prevailing prejudice in the NFL at the time uh, that he was forced to sit out and frankly cost Rock Island uh, a legitimate shot at a, an NFL title in 1924. And that's one of those things, again, that Duke Slater really didn't talk about, really didn't, you know, he didn't, you know, uh, uh, have a lot of sour grapes about those kinds of things. But uh, but looking back on it in retrospect, it's really remarkable that 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 that's how it went down. And that uh, and that was a big part of, of, of Slater's legacy as far as why he never really had a shot in an NFL title. And of those 99 games, he started something like 96 or 97 of them. And in those games he played, he played virtually every minute of every game he ever suited up for. I mean, his stamina, his strength, his abilities. Holy smokes, how good was this guy? He was really fantastic. I mean, I can't overemphasize how good he was. Um, he he started 96 of 99 games, career games uh, in pro football. Uh, part of it was uh, when he went from Rock Island, he signed with uh, the Chicago Cardinals, and he, he played the final five years of his career with the Chicago Cardinals. But he actually – uh, played the final two games of the 1926 season with the Cardinals. So he played most of the year with Rock Island. The team folded, and then he finished out his final two years with with uh, the Chicago uh, uh, Cardinals. Now, uh, 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 the- Neil, let me just interrupt for a second. Mm-hmm. For, for sure. those who are listening, I just want to uh, – uh, who don't know, the Chicago Cardinals then became the St. Louis Cardinals, who are now the Arizona Cardinals. So this is a team with a long, long history in the NFL, and that's the team that Duke Slater is probably most recognizable uh, uh, with. So now continue. Right, absolutely. The The Cardinals are one of two surviving uh, teams from 1920. Uh, the Cardinals, who were the Chicago Cardinals, now the Arizona Cardinals, and, uh, of course, the Chicago Bears. Uh, the Green Bay Packers came in the following year in 1921. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, it's 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 funny because he finished his final two games uh, uh, of 1926 with the Chicago Cardinals. Um, when he signed with the Chicago Cardinals in 1926, he of course became the first African American to play for a current NFL franchise when he signed with the uh, Chicago and now Arizona Cardinals in 1926. But he played the final two games of 26 for the Cardinals. They had already been playing all season with a lineup. So he came off the bench in those two games. Mm. And that's two of the three games that he didn't start in the NFL. <laughs> and uh, the third game that he didn't start was sort of without explanation. Uh, and then, uh, but interestingly enough, uh, the, the, the Chicago Cardinals got way down in that game. Duke Slater came in and they came back and then a comeback victory after Duke Slater came in the game. So uh, that's, 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 that was his career with that. But yeah, the other point that you made that, that's an important one is he played all 60 minutes of uh, over 90 of his career NFL games. Incredible. In nine of his career games, he played all 60 minutes of the games. He was there from the opening kickoff to the final whistle at the end of the game. He played all 60 minutes, offense, defense, special teams, every minute of every game. And it wasn't uncommon for guys to play all 60 minutes in a game. Uh, but to do it game after game after game for an entire season was unusual. And then to do it season after season was just unheard of. <laughs> I think if... If that stat were kept, which is to say complete games played in NFL history, Duke Slater would probably I, – I, I'm fairly confident he would have played more complete games than any player in NFL history in terms of playing a 60-minute games in the National Football League. And to think about that he had the durability to do that, number one, and then to do it as an African-American where you know he had to be the target of a lot of sure. shots, of a lot of rough play, and then the fact that he was able to play it and be so durable and be so productive – it's 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 a remarkable part of his legacy, and it's it's a real tribute to to just how hard he played and just how great a player he was. And his demeanor on the field. He was considered to be, in football terms, one of the most fair and I guess courteous players in the game. He was. He was. He was really a gentleman on the field, and and again, that's where we we mentioned the story before where. Uh, he, there was a player who, you know, was kind of getting rough with him and he said, listen, don't do that again. I don't want to have to hurt you. And, you know, if you were fair with Duke Slater, he would be fair with you. And, you know, he would, he would play in a way that was very, you know, he, I think in all of his football career, he wanted to set an example for black players in the NFL. He wanted to set up an example for how a black professional football player should act. And, you know, in 1927 was, was, was a perfect example of that. In the final game of the 1927 season, he's playing for the Chicago Cardinals. They're terrible. They are, you know, they're having the worst career of probably any team Duke Slater's ever played for in his entire career. They're having the worst season. And, the final game of the year, one of the writers says, you know, it doesn't seem like any of these players on the on the Chicago Cardinals even are going to bother to try to play hard except Duke Slater. And, and that was what he brought to the table, which is, you know what, I'm not going to give anybody – because in 1927, he was the only black player in the NFL. He's not going to give anybody a reason to cut him. He's not going to give anybody a reason to question his work ethic. He's not going to give anybody a reason to question not just his work ethic, but the work ethic of any black football player who might come uh, after him. 
he he wanted to set the example that listen this is the way that we play and even though we're in the final game of one of the worst years you know i've had i'm going to continue playing hard because that's what i do and so he he gained the respect of his teammates uh, one of the uh one of the saddest descriptors that i read was one newspaper uh described him as being as uh as white inside as he was black outside. Yeah, I, I saw where you wrote were, that. Yeah. They were supposed to, they were intending that as a compliment. And today you're just like, oh my word, I can't believe you wrote that. But, you know, that really was was one of those things where he was seen as, okay, this this guy's cool. Like this guy is, he he's, he, he's, he's, he's one of the club. Like he, he sort of got in. And a lot of that was his personality, was the fact that he did, you know, he, he had a dominant physical presence, but he didn't try to intimidate people if he wasn't pushed into a corner. Like he just, he always treated teammates fairly. There's a story about how a player came through and Duke Slater really could have hurt him by like healing him with his, with his shoes, which he was then wearing by the time he's playing in the NFL. Um, and uh, he refrained from doing it. And a reporter asked him afterwards, you know, why didn't you go ahead and take the shot on that guy? And Duke Slater just got a big smile on his face, on his face. And he said, that little fellow was stopped. Why would I hurt him? You know, <laughs> but uh, that's the, that's the kind of attitude that he had that just endeared him to not only his teammates, but opponents and allowed him to continue to play in an era where racial prejudice had really shut out most of the black players in the NFL during the late 1920s. Duke Slater was able to play. And that was one of the many reasons why, why he was able to remain because he, uh, he had a demeanor like that, which, which, which made him welcomed by, by, by pretty much everybody. Right. He would dominate players. And then I, I think I read where he would tell them, how to play better. He would coach the opposition in the middle of the game. He'd offer them tips on how to play against him. And after dominating players, like you said, he'd ease up on them. I don't think you'd see that in today's game. No, that was actually, that was taken from a college game where uh, uh, one of the the college opponents, uh, an opposing head coach said Duke Slater was the cleanest player we've ever played against, which, you know, obviously they, they said in terms of clean, being a gentleman and being a good guy, uh, one of the opposing players said Duke Slater would help me up afterwards. And, you know, he's like, they were beating our team so badly that he would actually give me tips on, on things to do. He's <laughs> like, and I played much better against Duke Slater, but then I came to realize that I was playing better against him when the ball was going in the other direction, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but, but he was a guy who always had a, a consideration for the opponent. He wasn't trying to cheap shot him. There's another story. Uh, about when he was in his NFL career where a player going up against him was essentially a fairly new player and he was basically playing for his job and Duke Slater was already an established player at that point and uh, with you know the game outcome basically decided um, Duke Slater you know this you know people were telling him after the game you know this this other player who was who had gone up against Slater they said boy, you did a great job. And, you know, you really played Duke Slater even. And the player <laughs> said, you know what? I knew that was just an example of Duke's kindness of heart. Like I knew wow. that was just an example of how Duke Slater, he knew he'd already made the team and whatever. And then that guy, uh, 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 Paul Minnick, I believe his name was, he wound up making his team and, and, and uh, he was able to hang around professional football for a few years. Uh, just, you know, again, earning, earning whatever paychecks were coming along. Um, but it, that was the important thing for them. And, and for Duke Slater, it was about, you know what, I could, 
what, what, what am I trying to prove here? <laughs> and uh, the fact that he had that kind of an attitude about the game, again, really endeared him to, to not only the people on his teammates who have, you know, uh, the race issue aside, of course, his teammates would love him. I mean, unless, you know, outside of a racial bias, of course, his teammates would love him. But the fact that his opponents were so uh, uh, enamored with an African-American lining up across from them was really, really remarkable. You know, a lot of grades poured a lot of praise on Duke Slater in college and in the pros. Did Duke relish any praise in particular? And what about the fact that when we go back to college, I believe it was Walter Camp wouldn't praise him with first-team All-America honors. Did Duke feel slighted? Uh, as far as college honors, he he did feel slighted by by Camp overlooking him. In his senior year in college in 1921, Duke Slater was a first-team All-American by almost every all-American selector by a, a wide consensus of all-American selectors, but the one biggest all-American selector was Walter Camp, and uh, Walter Camp did not name a first-team all-American. They named him a second-team all-American, and there was uh, a considerable amount of outrage, not only in Iowa, but across the Midwest, that they had left this, this Duke Slater off, and they were telling stories of things that Duke Slater had done that no college football player in years uh, uh, could compare to. And uh, a lot of that was, you know, there, there was the suggestion that Camp was somehow racially biased. I don't really think Camp was racially biased. What I think is he was he was an East Coast writer mm-hmm. and he had an East Coast bias. He, he liked players that he had seen play out on the East Coast and and, and some players like that. And uh, he, he justified it by saying, well, the, the justification was is that the All-American team in 1921, first team, had 11 players who played at 11 different schools. And Iowa already, was already represented on the All-American team by their quarterback, Aubrey Devine. So that was, I think, the justification for leaving Slater off. But uh, he always, you know, I think Duke Slater, uh, Duke Slater had said that that was one of the bigger disappointments was that Camp didn't recognize him because he's not recognized as a consensus first-team All-American. Uh, even though he clearly played at that level, um, he was not recognized as a consensus first-team All-American because of solely because of Camp's snub. And so, you know, but he was praised by some of the biggest names in in, in football. Uh, he actually became very, very good friends later in life with with Ernie Nevers, who he mm-hmm. played alongside, who said he was he was phenomenal. Uh, obviously, in college, Newt Rockney uh, talked about how. Uh, he put two or three people on on Duke Slater uh, with no success because uh, he, you know, uh, Newt Rockney had some great words of praise for him, and then uh, uh, Red Grange was a big, big proponent of Duke Slater as well. Red Grange often talked. Uh, uh, the quote I love from Red Grange is, "You can bring uh, you can bring all the tackles in the country, but that Duke Slater's the best of them all." That's and, great. Uh, you know, from a guy like Red Grange, who is the name of of, of his era of uh, of professional football, I mean that 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 really says uh, a lot. And you know, one of the things that I've that I've uh, always pointed out with respect to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and Duke Slater's Duke Slater's tragically not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which is just absurd. But um, one of the things that I've said is Red Grange uh, in 1959. Uh, the 40th anniversary of the NFL, Red Grange was asked, okay, give us your all-time all-NFL team, 11 best players in NFL history for an all-time team, 11 players, 
best best 11 players first 40 years in the NFL go and Grange actually named 13 guys because he's Red Grange and so he's loud <laughs> and also he didn't name himself which shows that he's pretty modest because I think he would be in those 13 probably but he named 13 guys he named 12 current pro football hall of famers and Duke Slater wow that's who he named and again you know the, the thing that I point out and I try not I, I don't want to make it a racial thing because Duke Slater deserves to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame for what he did, not because he was black, but because he was a great Hall of Fame caliber player who happened to be black, which is even more amazing and probably the reason he was overlooked. But the one thing that I do mention is Red Grange, when he named the 13 greatest players in the first four decades of the NFL, he named 12 white players and Duke Slater. Wow. And he named 12 guys who were in the Hall of Fame, the 12 white players he named are in the Hall of Fame and Duke Slater, who's not. And so you start to step back and say, something's not right here. He's been forgotten for, for an inappropriate reason, and it's, it's time to sort of reevaluate his legacy through the eyes of a man like Red Grange. Who knows what he's talking about when it comes to, to football of that era? Is there a way that Duke could still get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, or is his eligibility gone? Yeah, there absolutely is. Um, what what The way that the Pro Football Hall of Fame works is there's the modern era candidates and there's sort of the modern era process. And then if you've been out of uh, uh, pro football, if you've been retired past a certain point, you go through into what's called the seniors pool, uh, which has been called the seniors abyss for a lot of people because it's really <laughs> hard to get out of the seniors pool. The way that the seniors pool work is most years they're, they're able to name two seniors who can uh, – uh, they can nominate as finalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So they get two seniors. Well, two seniors a year might seem like a lot in theory. There are so many great seniors uh, in that pool with Duke Slater who, you know, are also waiting and, and, and wanting to have a chance to be a finalist and be considered for this. When I've spoken with the voters uh, on the seniors committee for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, universally it's easy they say this guy's a hall of famer this guy should be in the pro football hall of fame he absolutely should be in but that's not the the struggle the struggle is okay he deserves to be in the pro football hall of fame and this is his year because he's in a seniors pool where there are a lot of guys who yeah you know what that guy probably should be in the hall of fame and that guy probably should be too and it's mm. just it's very easy every year to just and hey, let's put them off a year and hey, let's put them off a year. Right. And what happens is decades go by and you say, at what point do we stop and say, OK, Duke Slater deserves to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And it's time to stop kicking the can down the road. It's time to stop putting this off. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame and he deserves to be on the Hall of Fame now. You know, that's the difficult thing with with the Pro Football Hall of Fame, because those guys are always going to have a re there, there's always going to be an excuse to push him down the road. There's always going to be another candidate who played more recently. And that's the issue is, is that when it comes to nominating players uh, for the pro football hall of fame, the seniors committee, they, they nominate more recent guys. That's what they do. They just nominate more recent players. And the, 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 there's always going to be an opportunity to do that. At some point we need to say, okay, this guy has been too long denied. Let's put him in. Uh, that's a, that's a, that takes some work. <laughs> it takes yeah. some convincing. Yeah. I've done a lot of, uh, of talking with the hall of fame voters and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it, it, it takes a while to, to come around. And th again, they're in a tough position. They're in an impossible position because they have to pick two players out of 40 guys. And the two players that they pick, their fans think that the hall of fame voters are geniuses and the fans of the, all the other 
uh, three dozen uh, guys who should be in the hall who were passed over. They all think the Hall of Fame voters are idiots and they call them terrible names. And so, you know, they're in a no win position and I have to understand their position. But at the same time, I also get to a point where it's like, listen, this this has to stop. Like at some point. We've got to stop this. It's and an injustice. He's got to get in. It's an injustice. It is an injustice. It absolutely is. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to speak a little bit about his life off the field after he retired. He did spend a lot of time coaching, but this guy practiced law and was a judge as well. Yeah, he did. He Well, uh, first with his coaching, he never really intended to be a coach. It was never really his career goal. But what happened was when, when the ban passed on black players uh, two years after he retired, he decided to start coaching some all-black, all all-star teams and have them play against white semi-pro teams and, and, and just be able to show the black players could play against white players. Uh, you know, amicably without any racial incidents. And the fact that they had the talent to play, I think that was really the point he was trying to make. And, and, and he was involved in coaching in a lot of those, those aspects. Um, It was, it was not something that he had ever really wanted to do as far as coaching. It was just a way to give other black football players an opportunity while that band was in place. Um, But as far as his professional career, he actually went back uh, and, attended law school, graduated from the University of Iowa College of Law in 1928, which he was still a current active NFL player. There were a couple of years when he played for for Rock Island. He would actually go back to Iowa City for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday law classes and then come back to Rock Island, have a couple of practices with the Rock Island Independents and then play an NFL game that that Sunday. Uh, the fact that he was able to do that, number one, shows that it was a different time. Number two, it's 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 kind of amazing that anyone would even attempt that. But he was able to uh, uh, get his law degree in 1928, which is a very impressive feat for an African-American at the time. He sure. passed the Illinois bar the following year, and uh, he then became an attorney on the south side of Chicago. Uh, after he retired from football, of course, the Chicago Cardinals were based on the south side of Chicago. Uh, and, and when uh, he retired from the Cardinals in 1931, he became a full-time attorney on the south side of Chicago. And in 1948, he was elected as a judge in the city of Chicago. He was the second African-American elected as a judge in the city of Chicago in 1948. Um, he, uh, he served as a judge in Chicago for almost 20 years. He sat on the bench on the south side of Chicago, uh, going over cases in the crowded courthouses, the south side. And um, uh, in 1960, he was actually elevated uh, from being a circuit court judge to the Chicago Superior Court, which at that time was the highest court level in the city of Chicago. And uh, he was the first African-American to ever sit on the Superior Court of Chicago, of Cook County. Um, uh, back then. And, and, uh, he was able to do that for a few years and then passed away, um, in, uh, in 1966 of, uh, uh, of stomach cancer. Mm. But, um, uh, he was, he was a tremendous judge. He was extremely intelligent. He was, he was one of these guys who, you know, uh, too, about too many African-American athletes, they said, Oh, well, they're great athletes, but they can't think, or they're not intelligent or they're whatever else. Duke's Duke Slater was the perfect rebuttal to that. And uh, it's funny because in the foreword to my book, I have a, a player who played in the NFL in the 1950s who basically said 
uh, uh, Sherman Howard, who played in the NFL in the 1950s, he said uh, he has great admiration for Duke and knew him growing up, growing up, saw him as somebody that he wanted to emulate. And uh, uh, Sherman Howard said that uh, I knew a lot of guys who were very, very, very prejudiced. But when you said the name Duke Slater, they just wouldn't say anything because they knew how revered and respected Duke Slater was. And they didn't have any rebuttal for him mm. <laughs> because – you know, he, they knew the widespread admiration that, uh, that he had. And, and, you know, Sherman Howard was the one who said he was the epitome of the black player in the NFL. Uh, he said, Sherman Howard said that growing up on the South side of Chicago, I was told as a young athlete, there are two guys you need to look up to Chicago area athletes. You need to look up to Jesse Owens and Duke Slater. Wow. And I mean, yeah, that's pretty it, good company it says it all right there. It really does. There is so much more to the Duke Slater story. We could talk for so much. We could talk forever about Duke Slater. I mean, <laughs> there's really just there's we? so much more to to Duke's story. I encourage anybody listening to pick up the book Duke Slater, pioneering black NFL player and judge. I have a link to it on on SportsFH.com. You could go to Amazon to get it. Neil. Absolutely terrific book. I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Before I let you go, though, anything you're working on now? Are you writing anything new? What's on the horizon? Yeah, uh, I am kind of in the middle of, of something right now. Um, like I said, I've, I've written books on the University of Iowa. I'm really connected to the University of Iowa. And um, uh, I've written uh, Duke Slater was actually my third book that I wrote about the Hawkeyes or Hawkeye-related topic. I'm actually working right now on another biography of, uh, uh, of a great figure uh, in uh, University of Iowa sports history and really just college sports history, uh, a man by the name of Bump Elliott. Hmm. Uh, Bump Elliott was uh, athletic director at the University of Iowa for for uh, for 20 years and kind of helped make uh, the University of Iowa in the 1970s and 80s uh, one of the great college uh, programs in the nation. He hired phenomenal coaches like uh, football coach Hayden Fry, uh, wrestling coach Dan Gable, uh, and a basketball coaches uh, like Lute Olson and wow. uh, Dr. Tom Davis. Wow! Uh, he did some great things at Iowa as an AD. But people, a lot of people don't remember before that, uh, he was a phenomenal athlete and coach as well. Uh, he was a great athlete at Michigan. He was the Big Ten MVP in 1947 for the uh, uh, national championship in the Michigan Wolverines team. And then uh, he got into coaching, and he was actually the head coach at uh, Michigan for 10 seasons, the head football coach at Michigan. And uh, he stepped down uh, after the 1968 season to become to get into athletic administration. One of the first things he did when he stepped down at Michigan as head coach to become an uh, uh, assistant AD there was help uh, uh, select his successor. And the man he helped select uh, uh, to replace him, head coach, was Bo Schembechler. Bo, Bo Schembechler was the head coach. So uh, he was a pretty good AD. He had, a, he had an eye for coaches and a pretty good athlete and coach himself and a phenomenal guy. And uh, he's actually uh, uh, in his 90s and uh, – I'm, I'm working with his family to help uh, write his life story. The hope is, is that'll uh, that'll be out hopefully by the end of the year, and uh, uh, that's uh, that's that's kind of what I've been working on now. So um, uh, another great uh, story to tell, and seems like they're always out there for sure. Terrific, Neil. Thank you again so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Duke Slater, pioneering black NFL player and judge. Look for it on sportsfh.com. Go to Amazon. 
Again, Neil, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate any opportunity I can get to talk about uh, Duke Slater and uh, uh, love your show. So appreciate it. Thank you. Perhaps the greatest game Slater ever played in came on November 28, 1929. Slater played every second of the game and paved the way for Ernie Nevers to score an amazing six rushing touchdowns that day in a 40-6 demolition of the Chicago Bears. Slater retired from football after the 1931 season. Now, being named All-Pro was a little different when he played as opposed to today. Nonetheless, he was named first-team All-Pro three times, second-team All-Pro six times, and third-team All-Pro once. In college, Iowa went 23-6-1 during his time there, and he was named to several All-America teams, including the 1921 first team. He was All-Big Ten in 1919, 1920, and 1921. In 1989, Iowa selected its all-time team, and, as one would expect, Slater was selected to this team as well. Off the field, Slater was the first African-American member of the Chicago Superior Court and later served on the Circuit Court of Cook County. A terrific life, a terrific career, one that should ultimately be recognized with a bust in Canton, Ohio, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Once again, thanks to today's guest, Neil Rosendahl, author of Duke Slater, pioneering black NFL player and judge. And we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.